Welcome to episode 466 of the Cyber Law Podcast, where lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and we're about to express views that don't reflect the views of our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, or even the four dogs that have joined me for today's episode. In addition to the dogs, uh, we've got a great lineup for the news roundup. Justin Sherman is a senior fellow at Duke's School of Policy and the CEO of Global Cyber Strategies. Paul Stephen is a distinguished professor of law at the University of Virginia Law School and a former counselor at the State Department and the Defense Department. And Kurt Sanger is former deputy general counsel of U.S. Cyber Command, currently a board member and advisor for Cowbell Cyber Insurance and Batten Safe Corporation. I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host and chief provocateur of today's program. So let's jump right in. I thought the most interesting story was the most technical in some respects, or at least the, the most classic cybersecurity story. And that was the one about the Russian who was arrested in Kazakhstan for hacking the United States and whose extradition is now being challenged by the Russian government, which says, no, no, we want to extradite him for his crimes in Russia. Kurt, this is a case with a long, long tail. It is. So one of his co-conspirators, I believe, is already serving an 88-month sentence and the indictment in that case, it's interesting from an operational perspective because those indictments essentially lay out how the hackers conducted their activities. And so it gives them a roadmap on what to avoid in the future. So hopefully an indictment in this case would be duplicative and not reveal anything more. It's a particularly interesting case because there are a number of these name and shame indictments that result in nothing but the naming and shaming. But this one, it appears that there is at least a chance that the hacker in this case will be brought to justice or at least face the court. And there's also the possibility that this case will cause some of his like-minded hackers to rethink the balance between their activities and their future travel plans and maybe discourage some hackers from doing what they do in the United States. I think his travel plans, I wonder how voluntary his travel plans were. This is a guy named Nikita Kislitsyn, and he was a big shot in Group IB, which is next to Kaspersky, the most active Russian cybersecurity company. And they themselves got in enormous trouble, like their CEO is under indictment in Russia for treason. But Kislitsyn had already been tagged, I think, for doing some of the hacks of DIN, if I remember, and Dropbox. When he was hired by Group IB to, to do this stuff for Group IB. And then Group IB fell foul of the Russian government. They are now out of Russia and they're in Singapore, but they left behind some of their staff and the, the staff they left behind created a, a new company, which Kislitsyn was part of. But I'm guessing that he was in Kazakhstan because Otherwise, he was at risk of being drafted for the Ukraine war. So he may not have just been enjoying the famous beaches of Kazakhstan. Well, the Kazakhstan involvement in this case is really interesting because it's not the first former Soviet republic that you would think of as handing people over to the West. 
though not the last either. And and the uh, willingness of the Kazakhs to arrest him indicates some distance between their government or at least their police authorities and the folks in Moscow, uh, which is in and of itself interesting information. Yeah, and and they have been, you know, obviously they've not been Belarusia in the diplomacy over the war. They have kind of consistently said, we think the war should end, but they're also doing an awful lot of business with Russia. And probably they might be second to Belarusia in terms of their closeness or maybe the ability of Putin to extort closeness from them. I, I can't think of anybody else who's- Armenia. Armenia, you're right. They're in in hock badly and also probably emotionally committed to Russia because of the war with Azerbaijan. Yeah, you're right. So yeah, this will be an interesting fight. We'll have the two dueling. This is what happened to Israel. Some Another hacker went to Israel. The US asked for his extradition. Uh, then the Russians indicted him too and actually arrested an Israeli woman and basically communicated, well, we don't have anything on her, but she's going to stay here in jail until we get back the guy that we want to extradite from Israel. That did not work out for the, the Russians. They ended up having to, and they lost the control of the guy and he's here. But I think the Kazakhs might be in a tougher spot. Well, the Russians did press charges against this guy after the Kazakhs held him for extradition. So far, no kidnappings, unlike the Israeli case. And maybe the Kazakhs would be a little bit more cold-blooded about uh, the fates of their citizens in Russia. That's probably right. They can, they can afford to ignore one or two uh, citizens who gets arrested because their press is not exactly free. But still, they have a very, very long border with the Russians. And the Russians don't have a lot of extra tanks these days, but I don't think it takes a lot of extra tanks. <laughs> All right. Speaking of Ukraine, Kurt, there's a claim by some hackers, seems to be validated, that they did to a Russian satellite telecommunications provider what the Russians had done to Viasat at the beginning of the war. What's the story there? So the Zorb teleport, it's used by energy companies and the defense institutions of Russia for internet connections. It's been taken down by what appeared to be or what was claimed to be Wagner personnel or sympathizers of Wagner based on what's happened in the past couple weeks with their organization. Hackers claim that they damaged satellite terminals and leaked and destroyed confidential information. It appears that it's more likely that Ukrainian forces did this as a false flag operation, which if it was done by Wagner or Wagner sympathizers. This is a matter for Russia to handle on its own under domestic law. Perhaps they can find the perpetrators and send them over to Belarus as they have with those who participated in the revolt. Speaking of Belarus, by the way, since we've mentioned it twice already, today is Belarus's Independence Day. So I wish them congratulations. No nation is more associated with independence than Belarus, of course. <laughs> So, uh, however, it's a more interesting international law question if Ukrainian forces or the Ukrainian government was behind this. It sets up some international law questions and perhaps the same ones that Viasat and the KSSAT uh, hacks at the beginning of the 2022 escalation. Really? I'm, I'm puzzled. If, if Russian military are using this satellite system, taking it down – 
The only question is whether that is somehow disproportionate in terms of the military goal it serves compared to the domestic civilian harm it causes. And that strikes me as very much a a judgment call. Uh, Those proportionality questions always are. I just think the same criteria with which one evaluates the Viasat hack might need to be applied here. But certainly those proportionality questions would answer whether they're wrongful international acts. So I was wondering, you kind of say, obviously, when when Viasat went down, the Ukrainians would have been looking for a chance to do the same thing back to Russia. And having an opportunity to screw with Russian military communications at the same time that there's a apparently hostile military force 120 miles from Moscow, probably they may have been saving this up for quite a while and saw an opportunity and then decided to false flag it as well. Now, the timing was certainly opportune and might have some impact on the international law analysis because the military advantage to be gained under the circumstances was probably far greater last week than it would have been at any other time. By the way, I I just want to add, right, I I agree with Kurt about the likelihood that this was Ukrainian. I, I do want to say there was a decent amount of reporting that sort of suggested, as he noted, that the Wagner Group was potentially behind this. There was a line in a Washington Post article, for instance, that said that, well, perhaps, you know, the GRU has a relationship with the Wagner Group. Perhaps, you know, the the Wagner Group was looking over the shoulder of the GRU when it did previous sort of destructive hacks and it picked things up. And then now the Wagner Group is doing it here. Like, there were all these just frankly, very bizarre hypotheses that got circulated that don't in fact, to me, just make any sense based on the relationship right now between the Wagner Group uh, and the GRU and the lack of, of capability the Wagner Group has in this area. But, but so as we why, said- why, why, who had an interest other than, I guess, the Ukrainian government in hyping the, the likelihood that this was Wagner? Or at least why was the Post so enamored of that theory? I don't know. I mean, there were other outlets that mentioned it too. It's not to not to single out the posts specifically, but as we know, right? I mean, this was right around, as Kurt said, when Prigozhin and forces are going towards Moscow, there is all this flurry in the press about coups and what's happening and did Putin's jet leave Moscow and right? It's sort of a very chaotic information environment, if you will. So, I don't think it was was anyone in particular trying to say it was the Wagner Group, but I think amid all that, there was a lot of speculation going around. And again, just that doesn't make sense to me based on how sort of the Russian yeah I'm kind of with you. works. But but yeah, an interesting an interesting development nonetheless. All right, so let's move to Washington because according to Ars Technica and actually a whole bunch of sources, the FTC is getting ready to unveil its biggest case yet against Amazon, probably the one that Lena Khan was most interested in bringing and has been for six years. Paul, what's the theory of this case and where does it stand? Well, the theory, I think, is really Lena Khan's law school note in the Yale Law Journal. And as I understand it, the idea is that old school essential facilities doctrine, which has sort of been withering on the vine, needs to be revived under the Sherman Act for really big tech companies, for big platforms, on the theory that their bigness kind of replaces 
essentialness, if by essentialness you mean they, they so dominate the world that everyone has to use them, which no platform is exclusive. But her argument is it's big enough. And under essential facilities doctrine, conventional, very old school antitrust doctrine, uh, you cannot discriminate in access. It's really the same concept that underlies net neutrality. The idea is that something like net neutrality has to apply to searches for products that Amazon offers, whether the seller uses Amazon additional services, shipping, warehousing and the like, advertising and the like or not. So why is this not a monopolization case? Would that be harder than essential facilities? I just don't don't make my living as an antitrust lawyer, but I don't think the requirements of Section 2 are here. Okay. Uh, and, and there are enough other facilities, uh, platforms. I mean, the fact that in a niche in the American market, Amazon is a big deal, doesn't mean there aren't alternatives. The company that everybody used to love to hate for being too big, Walmart, is second run, you know, and also ran to, to Amazon, but not exactly a, a weak sister when it comes to competing. Yeah. Plus the fact that I think it's inherent in platforms that they're operating in a very dynamic environment where their short-term dominance is very easy to unseat. It's not that hard to enter the market. And the argument that their network effects make them indomitable, there's just a lot of evidence suggesting that's not the case, that people can move to a new network very easily. Certainly, you know, I regularly look over at Walmart's site when I'm not sure I'm getting a good price from Amazon. But it's easy to move. And yet there are all these little things that push you to stay on Amazon, right? Prime keeps you there. And the fact that if you ever wonder, what did I buy and where did I get it? You can go to Amazon and check your old orders and find exactly what you got the last time and do it again. There's a lot of reasons to stay there. And certainly if you're a seller, you probably feel as though you just have no choice. You've, you've got to be selling through Amazon or you're never going to make it. And so the problem is maybe not so much that Amazon is undefeatable over a 10-year period, but for everybody else, they shape the market in ways that no one else who sells through them can contest. Well, the other issue here, I think, the related issue is even if you think they're an essential facility, is it discriminatory to give service kickbacks as opposed to price kickbacks for people who use your services. Right. I mean, uh, a claim of poor service is the same, uh, could be said the same way as we give better service to people who buy our other services. We bundle more efficient sales efforts with people who take our offer to do their advertising, storage, and shipping for them. So I'm not all that clear on how persuasive the discrimination claim is. Yeah, I think you're right. A big part of this is just we've kind of had it up to here with Silicon Valley and their exploitation of network effects, what's been called the encrapification of platforms. They start out giving you something where there's this big bonus, extra value, and you get you know from creating a platform where before you had a bunch of uh, isolated sellers, everybody benefits and especially customers. And then gradually the owner of the platform first screws the customers and then screws the sellers and crapifies the entire platform 
just up to the point where you might leave in order to, to maximize profits. That does feel like what is going on in platform after platform. And so I understand why people would be mad about it, whether antitrust law is the right way to deal with it. I'm guessing that's going to be a tough sell. I think not just in platforms, you have problems with firms who don't invest in building their brands past a certain point. And all of this crapification is really a form of brand degradation. And I, I just don't see how antitrust law can really be helpful in that area. It's a business choice. It's maybe a stupid business choice, but it's hard to second guess whether you should be amortizing your brand or continuing to invest in it. Yeah, fair enough. And and that raises the question for, for people, the consumers, as well as sellers, how do you protect yourself? How do you have a little bit of a anchor to a windward that says, I'm not totally beholden to the whims of this company, which might decide that in crapification means squeezing me until they've taken everything I have. And it's not easy because you have to commit to a platform in order to succeed on it. And then you're committed. Yeah, but it's not that hard to, I mean, most of what, I don't know about what Amazon sells, but most of what I buy from Amazon, and I'm a serious Amazon customer, there's always the ultimate seller's website as an alternative. And I often will compare the two. Yep. And I think anyone who cares can do that. I'll also make a meta point about academics doing policy, mm-hmm. uh, you know, referencing trying to make a law school note into law. I mean, the last big effort to do that was my friend John Yu, who, who tried to make his law review article into law back in 2002. And I think that was a big mistake. He got and, pretty far with it, but you're right. In the end, yeah, it uh, got a didn't lot work of pushback, out. I think. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and so far, I think Khan has been oh for whatever in the courts. I mean, I, I, I think no one's buying this stuff. Yeah, I did a cyber tune about that in which I compared the, the lawyers she was sending out to litigate for her to the to the guys who were supposed to find the, the landmines in Bakhmut by wandering around in the, in the field until they found one. You know, it's just a very dispiriting job to continue to litigate on behalf of the FTC. So we'll see. I, this is the big one. And the hard question that I think they're still struggling with is, do they bring it at the FTC, which is their home court, it's like, you know, the original home court, or do they go straight to a Article Three court? And, you know, I would have thought that it'll be almost irresistible to bring this at the FTC, even though it takes longer and raises more issues, just because the likelihood that they're going to prevail there at the ALJ stage is just enormous compared to going to court. I think you're right, but there is one issue that would also be in the FTC proceeding that I think would not be as significant in a court, which is the recusal issue. There are lawyers in the FTC who have issued published opinions that she shouldn't go near this case because of her law review note. I'm not sure that's right. I think that's overly cautious advice. But I'm with, I'm with uh, you. Yeah. Uh, but you could see the administrative proceeding being drawn out by that issue on top of everything else. Yeah. It does not strike me as at all disturbing that somebody would be appointed to a position that where her views are the views that the administration wants to see adopted in policy. And I don't know why she should recuse herself because she has strong views about how the antitrust law ought to be uh, carried out. That's a reason not to confirm her, but that's not a reason to recuse her. Yep. All right, Justin, are you planning to go to China anytime soon? And would you recommend that businessmen go to China these days? (laughs) 
I am not. As I noted over email, I am also now on the Russian sanctions list, so I will, yes, I will not be heading to that, that area of the of the world. There's, yeah, there's nobody. A, there's nobody on this episode that doesn't envy you. Oh, well, yeah. I, uh, lots of text saying congrats, so I suppose it's a good thing. Yeah, as you said, this is, this is an interesting development. There has been a new Chinese law change that went into effect on the 1st of July, essentially codifying some changes to the counterintelligence policy and enforcement and, and surveillance structure in China. But the core of it is that it defines a bunch of types of information, really vaguely, that could be considered sensitive to national security. And if an organization is found to be accessing or collecting that kind of information, would be, you know, conducting espionage under under that definition. So you have this risk now that's increased that foreign businesses operating in the country might be engaged in activities where they are obtaining documents or data or other items that the Chinese government subsequently says, this is related to national security, you're engaged in espionage, and that's potentially a way to crack down. And the kinds of raids and things we've seen against Bain and other companies, non-Chinese companies operating in China in recent months sort of suggest that that is an increased risk, I think, under the current circumstances. And China has, I think, in the case of the CFO for Huawei, who was the subject of a U.S. indictment and was stopped in Canada, the Chinese, in order to demonstrate to the Canadians that it was a bad idea to act on the U.S. extradition request, arrested a couple of completely innocent Canadians and just held them until the case was resolved. So they don't mind doing it without evidence and without a legal basis. So the prospect that they could do it to a U.S. businessman who asks the wrong kinds of questions has to give people a little bit of pause. Yeah. And even I think it was a month or maybe two months ago, the company CapVision, the international consultancy, which is one of these sort of expert networks was also raided in China, and that was also a signal to them. So yeah, as you said, it's it's quite transparent, I think, what the political objectives are if you look at how these measures are used in practice. But again, but I think, you know... Put- really bad, really bad for business, because if you're going to buy a company or enter a, a market, you need market research, you need to do due diligence on the company, and you need to hear that the due diligence from somebody you trust, whose ability to gather the information is not in question. And so all of those avenues for getting good data before you make a commercial decision in China are going to start to dry up. And then it just becomes a much riskier thing to invest there. And it has, as you said, I think that chilling effect on organizations that do want to try to engage with foreign businesses or do want to provide those kinds of expert insights because you're afraid that you're going to get wrapped up in it. It's, of course, not perfectly analogous, but we, you know, folks will recall the foreign agent laws that the Russian government began introducing about a decade ago. And that was the intent there as well, was we're going to identify places where we want to put pressure on the relationship or push out organizations. And by defining potentially any foreign business in the country as a security threat, we're now creating that chilling effect, like you said, such that it undermines 
business or, or political engagements or whatever it is that the state wants to target. Yeah. Now, look, I, I, I know that it's in the interest of Western lobbyists of the Chinese government to tell them to, to cool this. And so they're making this argument to maybe a little early. I'm not sure all of those raids were completely unjustified, but it's part of the disillusionment of Western companies with China that goes along with having only a 3% domestic growth rate that uh, is going to hurt their economy. All right. Speaking of hurting your economy, the EU has another set of tech regulations. They they are moving forward with, I guess, the Data Act, because they've already done the Data Governance Act and the General Data Protection Regulation. Paul, what is the Data Act and how is it going to uh, be different from all the other, well, is it going to be different from all the other EU's efforts to set the regulatory agenda for the world? Well, it definitely is an expression of what my friend Anu Bradford calls the Brussels effect, the idea that regulatory standards set by the EU will become general, at least for the rich world, because no one can stay out of the EU. Unlike some of the other projects, this one is a little broader in scope and not necessarily as directly anti-US as some of the others. It basically distinguishes between big companies and others, I think is likely to be at least some European entities, banks, for example, and other financial institutions that will fit within the regulated scope. The idea is to assign property rights in data in order to determine how they can be transferred, uh, developed, uh, whether to be third parties or, I think, retained and then turned into a database that can serve the purposes of the enterprise. I mean, the problem, I think, is that we don't seem to have clear property rights and clear rights to transact in them. I'm a you know, libertarian kind of guy. I think if you have clear property rights and clear contract rights, you can solve a lot of problems. But the problem is they seem to be taking something like what Michael Heller calls an anti-commons approach. If you assign enough property rights in the same thing to enough actors, you can pretty much ensure that no transactions will take place. Mm -hmm. And this idea of shared ownership, they seem to be going down that road. And they reserve the power to police transactions, transferring ownership of the data generated by transaction to make them legally uncertain. So you don't know. For example, in a perfect world, a entity that generates data through transactions would have among the boxes that are checked automatically a one saying, and we assign to the company the right to deal with the data. Uh, just a straightforward contract of adhesion to be sure, but probably an efficient way of clarifying the property rights. But it's almost certain that this won't permit those kind of transactions. Instead, they'll be retroactive are they getting a fair price based on fair notice, given that the concern is inequality of bargaining power between customers and entities that generate data through their transactions? There also is a general power of the government to seize any data they want. In an emergency, at no charge, and anything but in a big-time emergency, they, they have to pay fair compensation after the fact. So individuals are not protected from government. They're just protected from businesses making good commercial use of the data generated by summing all the transactions that the businesses are engaged in. 
And they're also <laughs> protected from having one company come through, creating network effects and sharing them with the people who helped them produce it. So I'm assuming that this is going to interfere with an effort of a large company to say, well, we can sum up all this data and produce something really valuable, not personal data, but you know, transaction data or a data about trades in the market and things of that sort. All of that, there's a market to create a platform so that you can seize that data and then exploit it and make all your money from the data. But if you're the EU, the EU says, well, maybe we'll let you do that. And maybe we'll come through and tell you that there are four people you have to share it with in order to continue to get access to it. So it does create the possibility that there'll just be more uncertainty and people will be less likely to do this because they think I will invest in all this work in creating some kind of platform to gather it. And then the EU is going to come along and say, actually, it's not yours. It's going to be given to somebody who didn't invest, but hired a bunch of good lawyers. I think at a minimum, it makes it fairly unlikely that there will be data aggregator startups in Europe. Yeah. And, Even though that's and, the whole idea of this was to create new intermediaries. They have a vision for the market and they thought they could bring it into being with regulation. You know, maybe in a perfect world where Europe is already the technology leader and people are playing catch up, possibly. But since they are, you know, behind both the US and the Chinese in these sectors, the idea that they can play catch up by making the industry more costly just doesn't make a lot of sense. So I noticed that that the effort to pass the AI Act is actually finally running into exactly that argument in Europe. This open letter actually was signed by some pretty impressive and very European businesses. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the argument is that the incumbents in AI are not so clearly established that we can't get in and that we have some people who want to get in. I mean, even though maybe the databases aren't European, there are other skills that AI producers can bring and that the AI regulation makes it way too costly to develop AI uh, technologies within Europe. And you have venture capitalists and other significant European actors. You have the countess by marriage of the uh, Furstenberg family, who's a very distinguished venture capitalist saying, hey, What about us? And you have European parliamentarians saying, you know, these are outsiders who are impugning our noble venture, which is to protect Europeans. I would say, of course, grumpy old man that I am protecting them from the future, like King Canute tried to protect the world from the waves. But it's interesting that there is some pushback. The problem with the EU, I will say generally, having worked on some regulatory issues there, is the projects, the legislative projects are stovepiped. So it's very hard for interest groups to get into the process. Yeah. And the political accountability is really crappy because the parliament is is not a serious parliament, yet it does have up or down authority over these projects. And the governments are so disparate. So it's kind of hard to build a coalition of governments to push back against these projects. So it's it's constitutionally designed, there I use the C word, I'm sorry, but it is constitutionally designed to prevent ill-advised projects from being scuppered. So interesting, you know, it the problem, people have said that the problem with Google and the reason you can't count on new products that Google introduces is that their incentive system is set up to give people 
big rewards for launching a product and not much in the way of rewards for making them actually work after you've launched. And so they launch products all the time and then abandon them when they don't seem to be working out. And there's a similar problem in Europe where launching a big initiative is really good for your bureaucratic entrepreneurial reputation. And at that point, you just jam it through and see what happens. But your reputation is already made by having jammed it through. And then everybody has to take you to lunch to make sure that you're not going to stick it to them with this new authority you've got. The point is fair, Stuart, but there is a difference in that makes the comparison incomplete. I mean, if you're a business and your projects fail, there are some costs associated with that. If you're a governing body, a regulatory body, and your projects fail, the costs are dissipated if they're born at all. Yeah. Anyway, Siemens, Deutsche Telekom, Deutsche Post, Merck, Renault, Peugeot, Airbus, Orange, Heineken, Dan and Yogurt, uh, Dasso, all said, you know, this this effort to jam generative AI into a law you'd already written and that didn't actually fit it is, what did they say? It's as bureaucratic as it is ineffective. I've said some mean things about Europe, but never anything meaner than that. So I don't know that it's going to change the course of the AI Act, but it probably should. Okay, let's talk about India and Twitter. Justin, Twitter got its head handed to it in court when it said, we don't want to block a bunch of Twitter users because of their criticism of the Modi government. What should we make of that? Well, first of all, we're talking about people being mean. It was it was quite a blunt ruling from the court, which among other things said to the attorneys for Twitter, you know, your client was given notices, your client did not comply. Punishment is seven years imprisonment. That did not deter your client. And then, you know, my favorite line, you are not a farmer, but a billion dollar company. But this concerns a lawsuit that Twitter had filed prior to Elon Musk's takeover against demands from the Indian government that Twitter restore access to certain pieces of content and certain accounts the context for this, right, is that the BJP, the ruling party in India, the, the party of Prime Minister Narendra Modi, had people had been tweeting, you know, lot, misinformation about COVID and other stuff and, and hateful content and Twitter had suspended it. Uh, and then the state, you know, ordered the company to put it back up. So this court ruling, I don't find surprising if anyone has been paying attention to the kinds of, of tech policies and laws that have been put in place in India in recent months, which have forced companies to do what the state asks and have has given them very little room to push back, if any at all. And actually, it was just a month or two ago that Jack Dorsey, who used to be Twitter's CEO, came out and was talking about the kinds of pressure that the Indian government had put on Twitter while he was there to bend to its wishes. And so I think we're only going to continue to see this you know, be a problem for, for companies that are operating in India, whether that's Facebook or Instagram or what have you, and trying to maintain some semblance of open speech and dialogue, and then running into these kinds of, of top-down state mandates. It's inevitable. There seems to be some gloating about how Elon Musk got tagged here, but it really looks as though he got tagged for the sins of the Ancien regime. 
But, you know, with India, it just shows when your ruling party has confidence in what it's doing, tech really can't resist the demands that it exercise its authority over speech in a way that the ruling party wants. It seems to me that's, that's the lesson of India. They're just too big to defy, and they're in a position to make uh, Twitter or anybody else do exactly as much speech suppression as the government wants. This shouldn't be a complete surprise, but watching it work out is fascinating. And that's sort of what's going on, Kurt, with the Facebook problems in Cambodia, where their appeals board has said, you really ought to exclude the prime minister of uh, Cambodia from Facebook because he said things that sounded like incitement to violence. So he may be the textbook case, and they might argue that He's done everything he can to get himself thrown off of Facebook. But in addition to incitement to violence, he's accused of a litany of human rights violations and trying to eliminate political opposition. He says he's going to take his business elsewhere, so being off of Facebook might not curtail his activities too much. But the interesting thing about this is that before the case went to the oversight board within Facebook, a decision had been made within Facebook that the newsworthiness of the content was why they kept it on. And the oversight board recommended that they balance the newsworthiness with potential violations of human rights. So this sets up uh, future analyses where they are going to have to balance these things against each other. And it's certainly interesting, I think, that incitement to violence is the one thing that you can look at in at least the U.S. tradition that will get your speech either banned or punished under the First Amendment. So this may not be the controversial call that it will be in other cases, but here, I think the prime minister has made it pretty easy for the oversight board. Yeah, you know, this reminds me of what Twitter tried to do with, I think it was President Buhari in Nigeria, when he reacted to some students who were, you know, engaged in some pretty pretty aggressive demonstrations and threatening to secede from Nigeria, which, you know, is a threat that the Nigerians are not going to ignore because they've had some real secession wars. And he said, you know, if you secede, we're sending troops. Uh, we know how to fight a secession war. And Facebook got the vapors. Oh, my God, you've threatened violence against your citizens. You know, I don't know. I, I, when when I studied political science, they said that's how governments work. They have a monopoly on violence. So to say we're not going to let governments threaten violence has to come with a lot of asterisks, doesn't it? Yeah, but I think coupling it with some of his other activities off of Facebook might have made this easier for the oversight board. Oh, he said he said he's a, a deeply unattractive authoritarian. But it's weird as a violator of a violation of human rights to say, if you keep criticizing me, somebody's going to show up in your neighborhood with a bat and you might get beaten up. I mean, that barely gets to 50% on the authoritarian meter, does it? Yeah, we all have our own meters for those kind of uh, <laughs> assessments. But Well, but in, in Cambodia, where, where they basically said, if you're wearing glasses, we're going to kill you, saying we will send mean people to your neighborhood and you might get beaten up does strike me as, you know, it's not a good thing. It's a, I, I would not like it if they, that were happening in a democracy, but it's a, just a weird thing 
to say, well, that's what gets you tossed off of Facebook. Now, maybe I'm I'm getting soft. All right, let's just do two quick hits and close up. First, to update you on Canada's effort to force Google and Facebook to pay for news links that link to Canadian media. They passed the law that says you're going to have to pay. Facebook said, we're leaving because we don't need the revenue we, we would get from, we're not we're leaving, we're, we're not going to do any more links to Canadian newspapers or media. Google, which needs media links a lot more, has said, we're leaving too. We're not going to link to Canadian media anymore. This is a disaster, I think, for Canadian media and for the Canadian government, which thought that for sure these guys would break and negotiate as they did in Australia. But looks to me as though this is going to turn out to be one of those disasters where in two years, the Canadian government sponsors a negotiation in which crumbs are distributed to Canadian media and everybody claims it as a victory. But for now, it's going to be painful. So that's I have done a, a CyberTunes version of that, and we'll try to post it with the, the blog post I do on this. But my favorite is those who have listened to the podcast, I think just last week, heard us say that the entire Commerce Department program to ensure the security of the supply chain that goes into the US IT should be the subject of an amber alert because there was no sign that anybody at the Commerce Department was actually doing anything. We get results. This week, USA Jobs has a job announcement for somebody to run the supply chain security program at the Commerce Department. So who says they don't listen to the Cyber Law Podcast at the Commerce Department? I'm delighted. Congrats to the Commerce Department. And if you're interested in the job, this is the time to apply for it. So that's it for the Cyber Law Podcast. I want to thank Kurt, Justin, and Paul for joining us. That was a terrific program. And for our listeners, leave us questions, comments, reviews, send them to cyberlawpodcast at gmail.com or leave them as a review on the website where you subscribed. We will read it on the air if it's all entertaining. This has been episode 466 of the Cyber Law Podcast. If you're worried about not enough legal uncertainty, this is the solution to that problem. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 there we go. All right. Now we got dogs. They obviously disagree. Uh, <laughs> they'll give, they'll show you certainty. Just come right on over here, buddy. <laughs>